Matthew 21, verses 1 to 11. Hear the word of the Lord. Now, when they drew near to Jerusalem and came to Bethphage, to the Mount of Olives, then Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, you shall say, The Lord needs them, and he will send them at once. This took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet, saying, Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. The disciples went and did as Jesus had directed them. They brought the donkey and the colt and put on them their cloaks, and he sat on them. Most of the crowd spread their cloaks on the road, and others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. And the crowds that went before him and that followed him were shouting, Hosanna to the Son of David! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord! Hosanna in the highest! And when he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred up, saying, Who is this? And the crowd said, This is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth, Galilee. Let's pray. And now may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O God, our strength and our Redeemer. Amen. It seems like it's hardwired into humans to compare ourselves to others. And when we consider ourselves to be more sophisticated than others, tend to look down on those others as backwards or as more rustic. But I'm sure we've also had the experience of being the backwards ones, the less sophisticated ones in a a group of people that seem to be better prepared or more refined uh, than ourselves. Maybe we were the ones that were uncomfortable in the company of such people. Uh, we notice how people use words. We notice how people dress. We notice uh, what their world views are, and we sort of put people in a pecking order. Uh, city folk tend to look down on country folk as less sophisticated. Country folk tend to look down on city folk as being rude and uh, un, uh, unconcerned about relations and history. And uh, uh, educated people tend to look down on less educated people and uh, the wealthy on the poor and one region on another. And I'm not going to mention any, any particular regions, perhaps, but I'm sure we in South Florida during this tourist season, we probably have different ideas about the people from such and such a state and the people from such and such a state. And we probably have our, our different ideas about how they are. I, I used to live in Maryland, and uh, when I was in Maryland, I was an outsider, but they told jokes about a neighboring state. I won't mention which neighboring state that was, uh, but I'm sure there are others who tell jokes about Maryland, and, and so and so it goes on like that. Uh, Sandy overheard a conversation once in the, in the hills of western North Carolina in a store when somebody was being rude to another person, and this North Carolinian, trying to come up with the worst insult that he could, he said, what are you, a Floridian? Yes, okay, right. So, um, right, so, you know, this, this goes around and, and comes around, right? So, uh, it, it happens in Latin countries as well. Supposedly we all speak the same language, but, um, uh, in Spanish, but there's countries that don't like the Spanish of the other countries. I, uh, Mexico, they, they tend to make fun of the, the Spanish of a certain region of Spain. And uh, and then I've heard that there are people in other parts of Latin America that won't let their children watch a movie if it's been dubbed by a Mexican. 
So this, this goes around and around, and it seems to be a natural human thing. But this is how Judeans, Judeans, especially those who lived in Jerusalem, looked at Galileans. If you'll remember how the situation was, political situation, geographical situation of the day of Jesus, the people of Israel had been divided into two kind of provinces. There was Judea in the south, and the capital city was Jerusalem. And then there was Samaria in the middle, where these despised mixed-breed Samaritans lived, half Jewish, half pagan in their ancestry. And then above that, there was another Jewish area, which was Galilee. Jesus spent most of his time in Galilee. Jesus uh, had been born in Judea, but was raised in Galilee in Nazareth. And so he was identified as a Galilean. And the Judeans, and particularly the the capital uh, city Jerusalemites, tended to look down on these rustic and backward uh, Galileans. Well, today we read about a horde of Galileans approaching Jerusalem, the capital city in Judea, in the most provocative manner possible. And I am not particularly given to alliteration, uh, but this text just falls into a natural sort of alliteration of the use of a same letter. In verses 1 to 3, we have the preparation. In verses 4 and 5, we have the prophecy. And then in verses 6 to 11, we have the praise. It just happened, folks. I didn't really work on that. There's the alliteration. So we have preparation, prophecy, and praise. And in the, uh, in the Passover, Passover is one of, was one of three feasts in which, at least theoretically, all of the male Jews were to go up to Jerusalem. And, by the way, in the Bible you'll always find people going up to Jerusalem because it's conceived to be the highest point in the world. And uh, so you're always going up to Jerusalem and the Passover, Pentecost, and Tabernacles. But uh, I'm sorry, Passover was the most popular of those feasts. There are wild estimates about how many people would go to the feast, but there's a a fairly plausible estimate by one historian that said that Jerusalem had a population of about 30,000 during the year, so a considerable city in those days, and during the Passover feast, it swelled to 180,000, so six times. In our little town of Lauderdale-by-the-Sea, there are only about 6,000 uh, full-time residents there, but it swells to about 11,000 uh, during the tourist season. And we feel the difference when it's almost doubled. Can you imagine six times? And obviously there weren't places for people to stay, so they would stay all around. They would camp out basically all around the city. And so what they did is they extended the official official boundaries of Jerusalem for for. Uh, for the, the, the law's sake, that is to say, you go up to Jerusalem, well, that the outside boundaries would count as Jerusalem during those days. And included in those extended boundaries for festivals was Bethphage and the Mount of Olives. Now, the significant, significant thing about the Mount of Olives is from the Mount of Olives, uh, coming over the Mount of Olives, you could see Jerusalem. So you got a, a good glimpse of Jerusalem. And upon arriving there to Bethphage in verse 1 and the Mount of Olives, Jesus put into action a plan. Now, there are a couple different ways to read this plan. Some people look at this plan and say that he knew because he is God, that he knew 
uh, about this donkey and uh, the foal of the donkey and the owner. And he knew that if he sent his disciples to do this, that this would happen. And he had prearranged it in sort of a, a sovereign way. And that's not a bad way to read this. That's possible. But it seems to me that as we read this, it looks like a prearranged plan. Uh, that he set this up and uh, he had a code word that they were supposed to say, and upon hearing that code word, that the owners would release it. Either of those is a plausible reading of this text. But however that may be, he put it into action, told his disciples, go into the village, uh, immediately you'll find a donkey tied, a colt with her, untie them and bring them to me. And here's what looks to me like a code word. If anyone says anything to you, you shall say, the Lord needs them. Now in Matthew, the, the expression the Lord refers to God. And so it looks like what he's saying is, the code expression is, God needs them. God needs them for a certain purpose. The owners uh, let them go, and they uh, took them at once to Jesus. Now, um, a donkey may not seem like a very sophisticated animal to us, does it? Uh, When we want to insult somebody, we refer to a donkey. And um, however, in the Old Testament, there's some precedents about leaders riding donkeys. We can go, actually, there's an interesting prophecy all the way back in Genesis, all the way back in Genesis. Uh, it's in Genesis chapter 49, verses 10 and 11. It's on in, in the Bibles that are available to you, page 48, but I'll, I'll read it to you. Uh, 49, 10 and 11, the scepter shall not depart from Judah. Judah was one of the tribes of Israel, and it became the tribe, the kingly tribe of David and his descendants. The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until tribute comes to him, and to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. Binding his foal to the vine, and his donkey's colt to the choice vine, he has washed his garments in wine, and his vesture in the blood of of grapes. So all the way back there, that, that royal prophecy refers to him owning what? A donkey. And then we have in the book of Judges, it refers to a couple of different judges, which were, there weren't kings yet, but they were rulers in their own right, at least regionally. And it refers to one who had 30 sons, and the 30 sons rode donkeys. Donkeys. If you want to look it up, it's Judges 10, 3, and 4. And then it refers to another judge who had 30 sons. And 40 grandkids, I think that's what it was, or 40 and 30, I don't remember, 70 in all, and they rode 70 donkeys. There you go. Probably the most significant reference is when David was about to die and he was making the transition, he was going to choose one of his sons, and there was some some positioning among the sons to try to take his place, but David wanted to choose Solomon. One of the ways he did it was he mounted him on his own, Donkey. Okay, there you go. So uh, this was something in the Old Testament that kings would ride and kings' sons. That's that's in First Kings chapter one, forty-three and forty-four. So that's the preparation, the donkey. Now we get the prophecy in verses four and five. In verses four and five, Matthew helps us out, and it's, he says here, "This took place. This took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet, saying." And by the way, we haven't gotten to study Matthew together yet, but this is what Matthew does. Matthew was writing, apparently, to a Jewish audience, and so he does this all through it. He he stops and he says, this took place to fulfill. 
Now, uh, we would not pick this up, and so we Gentiles are glad for him making these references. But he says, this was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet, saying, and here he quotes Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9, Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. Now, apparently, Jesus expected the crowds to make this connection. We need Matthew's help, don't we? But the crowds would have known the Old Testament references. They would have uh, known about Zechariah's prophecy. And apparently he was expecting them to make this connection as he mounted this donkey and headed towards Zion, towards Jerusalem. So he was doing this on purpose. The, The prophecy foretold the coming of a king who would make universal peace among the nations, as we read it in the earlier Old Testament reading. It was unmistakably messianic. Now, when we refer to messianic prophecies, we're referring to prophecies of the coming anointed one of God, the coming Messiah, the coming chosen one of God. So it was unmistakably kingly, and it was unmistakably unmistakably messianic. So this prophecy was pointing to a coming king, and that king would be the chosen one, the anointed one of God, the Messiah. However, this king would bring, would bring peace to the nations, not by dominating over the nations, not by crushing the nations, but rather it says he comes in peace. He comes humbly as a, uh, a servant, as one who would bring peace to the nations. If we look at what Jesus described about his leadership, this, uh, this makes sense that he would come this way. If you look at just the chapter before chapter 21, if you look at chapter 20, 20 and verse 25 and following, it says, But Jesus called them, his disciples, and said, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them. They dominate them. Their great ones exercise authority over them. It shall not be so among you, but whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be your slave. That's what he said. That's how service works. That's how leadership works in my kingdom. And then he comes peacefully, humbly, riding on a donkey, living out what he had just told his disciples to do. And then we have, in 6 and following, we have the praise that breaks out. And by riding on an animal while everyone else was walking, Jesus would have stood out. He would have stood out, because everyone was walking and He's on an animal. And then by spreading their cloaks on the road, the people were recognizing Jesus as King. If you go back to 2 Kings chapter 9, I won't read it, but 2 Kings 9, 12, and 13, there's an Israelite king named Jehu. And a prophet goes to him and anoints him as king. And then the prophet leaves, and uh, Jehu was a military commander. And they said, what was that prophet about? And he said, well, you know, you know how those prophets are. They're kind of crazy folk. They just talk crazy things. And he said, no, tell us. What did he say? He said, well, he just told, us, told me that I'm going to be the king. And so immediately the other members of his troop took off their cloaks and put them down in front of Jehu and proclaimed Jehu is king. And so there's a precedent to this. So the people were taking off their cloaks, putting them down in the road and recognizing Jesus as king. Now these people that were coming along were 
from Galilee, likely, probably mixing with people from other places, but these pilgrims were likely from Galilee. They were coming with Jesus. It said some were going before, some were going after. And so these were, these were disciples of Jesus, as Luke tells us in Luke 19.37. These weren't just this uh, random people that were going up to the feast. These were Jesus' traveling companions. And so they already were there accompanying Jesus. They were from Galilee. And from Jerusalem, how would have this looked? So you're sitting on the walls of Jerusalem, let's say, or you're at the gates of Jerusalem, and you look out and you see this horde of Galileans uh, coming up the way towards Jerusalem, and they have somebody mounted on a donkey, and they're laying their cloaks before him. It looks something like a mock invasion, doesn't it? Now, there are no soldiers involved, so nobody would have really been too frightened that it was actual invasion of those Galileans, but it, it looks like they're sort of mocking an invasion of Jerusalem, marching on Jerusalem with this, this king on a donkey. And then they started singing Psalm 118 or saying verses from Psalm 118. And by the way, there's a, there's a section of Psalms uh, in, in, the, in, the, in the 100 teens, and these, these songs were used by the pilgrims as they were going up to Jerusalem. So these were natural sort of songs that they would sing at the time. But they were applying these songs to Jesus. And they were saying to Him, Hosanna to the Son of David, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. This is in verse 9. Hosanna in the highest. Now, this word Hosanna was originally, it meant save us. Save us now. So it was a petition. It was asking God to do something. But over the course of time, it got turned into a praise of God. Uh, And so it wasn't uh, anymore a petition, but it was a praise. And you can see that's how it's being used here. Hosanna to the son of David. And this language of son of David is, is kingly language, recognizing that he descended from King David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. Praise in the highest. When Jesus entered Jerusalem, it says, this is how he approached Jerusalem, that when Jesus entered Jerusalem, it says the whole city was stirred up. It says the whole city was shaken by this mock invasion of Jerusalem by these Galileans. And the people asked an obvious question. In verse 10, what's the question? Who is this? Now, probably the tone of that question is, who does this Galilean think he is? Who who is this Galilean who's approaching Jerusalem as if he were a king with his hordes around him proclaiming Him the Son of David and putting their cloaks in His path. And then they gave the answer in verse 11. This is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. Now, they might have thought that was an impressive answer. But think of how that would have, uh, would have fallen on the ears of the Jerusalemites. Probably not too impressive. From Nazareth? Are you serious? Nazareth was a a small, despised town in Galilee. And so, while these Galileans might have thought they were giving him high praise, this is the prophet from Nazareth of Galilee. The Jerusalemites probably would have chuckled a little bit. Oh, a prophet from Nazareth? Yeah, right. What's he think he's doing? Okay, he's had his fun. Uh, We'll just get back to our, our festival here and not worry about these Galileans. 
However, Jesus would not let them do that. Jesus very soon would get their attention uh, in several ways. He went into the temple courts right after this, and he drove out the flea market that had developed there. The buying and the selling and the money changers and the carnival sort of atmosphere. And he, he drove them out and overturned tables in the middle of the temple precincts. Precincts, And then he was healing people in the middle of the temple, the courts as well. And then the children started crying out uh, and saying, Hosanna to the son of David, right in the middle of the temple courts. And then they say, don't you hear what these people are saying? And he responds and says, have you never read out of the mouths of infants and nursing babes, you have prepared praise. So they, they may or may not have been impressed with this answer about Jesus, the prophet from Nazareth in Galilee. He quickly got their attention by taking it right to them, right to the center of the religious and economic power of the day. But the thing we should notice about this is that something had obviously changed in Jesus we never see him act like this in the, in the Gospel of Matthew up to this point. This is, something has clicked. Something has changed radically in Jesus. If you will go back and read, particularly what we call the synoptic Gospels, because they have an optic that's similar, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. If you will read those, you will find throughout Jesus' ministry that when he heals somebody, he says, shh, don't tell anybody. Uh, when somebody begins to figure out who he is, he says, okay, good, but don't tell anybody. When the demons try to cry out and, and declare who he is publicly, he says, shut up, don't speak. So up to this point, he has been trying to keep his identity under wraps. He's trying to keep it something of a secret at the same time, giving out little bits of information so that people can begin to understand who he is, but, but keeping it under secret. And so this is a, a brand new attitude on Jesus' part, marching into the city as a king with people singing, then taking it right to the, the center of the, the, the courts of the temple and throwing people out and, and being declared the son of David right there. How can we explain this? How can we explain this, this change in Jesus? Well, it seems that the only answer that we can give is that he had decided that the time had come for his plan to be executed. And what was his plan? We don't have to go far to find his plan. If you go to Matthew chapter 20, verse 18, he lays out his plan to his disciples. He says, See, we are going up to Jerusalem. And the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and scribes, and they will condemn Him to death and deliver Him over to the Gentiles to be mocked and flogged and crucified, and He will be raised on the third day. And it looks like what He's doing here, He's putting that plan into action. He had, he had done it, He had announced it rather, a number of times to His disciples, but they hadn't understood it. And now He announces it one more time. And then he puts it into action. Now, um, the events that are about to unfold here in Jerusalem that we traditionally remember this week, his betrayal, 
His arrest, His condemnation before the Jewish leaders, His condemnation before Pilate, His being turned over to the the Roman soldiers, His being spit upon and mocked and then crucified with two other condemned criminals. All those events from the outside look like the powerful taking advantage of the powerless. It looks like from the outside that Jesus has fallen victim to, to political interests and economic interests and religious interests that are, that are beyond His control. And that he's, he's taken a step just a little too far. And now the hammer falls. And there's nothing that He can do about it. That's how it looks when you look at these events from the outside. But this entry into Jerusalem, what we're reading today, gives us another understanding of these events. These events are God's plan. These events are Jesus' plan. These events are the plan that He had come to execute. And He finally, after three years of ministry, was putting them into place. He was not the helpless victim. He was the King who was coming to execute His kingly plan. He was the Messiah who was coming, promised from all time, to finally to bring that salvation and that universal peace, that universal peace from shore to shore, from nation to nation, covering the earth that He had planned to bring. He was the one who was in control of the events that were about to unfold. But you might ask, what kind of king is that? What kind of king is that who rides into town on a donkey? And then provokes his enemies, and then hands himself over to them. What king does that? And the answer is no king does that except this king. And the reason that this king does that is because of what he said in the chapter before. Whoever would be first among you must be your slave even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give His life as a ransom for many. He's the only King that could. He's the only King that did give His life as a ransom, as a salvation to all who will trust in Him. Hosanna in the highest indeed. Hosanna to the Son of David. Let's pray. Our God, we sing Hosanna to the Son of David. Hosanna in the highest. Because that King, our King, that Messiah, our Messiah, has come and has executed His plan. Not the plan of the Jewish leaders, not the plan of Pilate, not the plan of the Romans, but His plan, Your plan for the salvation of the nations. And it was a great surprise. No military warrior, but a humble, gentle king riding on a donkey who is able to be gentle with sinners like us, having given his life for us. And we pray, O God, that you would give each of us here faith in that king, in that Messiah, so that our sins might be covered, so that we might be ransomed and declare with those Galilean hordes, Hosanna in the highest, 
Blessed be he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna to the Son of David. Amen.